Good afternoon. You can open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Again, that's 1 Timothy chapter 1. And as you're turning there, uh, just talk for a second about Stephen Crane's novel, The Red Badge of Courage. Not particularly well known, but it's on those uh, greatest books of all time kind of lists. And it recounts a story in the Civil War time of a young man named Henry. Henry didn't have to sign up for the war. He volunteered. He had visions of grandeur. He could see himself as a great soldier getting swept up in the cause. In fact, right after he registered for the army, he was getting a lot of attention from his peers and even some young ladies. So he gets sucked into this great conflict. And then he gets to the front lines, and he's about to have to fight the fight. And he starts to panic. He goes into an existential crisis, and his main concern is not that he'll die, like you might think. His main concern, actually, is that he'll flee, that he'll turn out to be a man of cowardice. And so the author, Stephen Crane, tells this story about this young man who, in one minute, he sees himself emerging victorious, he's fearless in all the glory, and then the next minute, he's a total wreck, He's panicking, he's afraid, he's fishing with his other soldiers, like, hey man, you ever been afraid of what you might do? This kind of stuff. He's just a total train wreck. And part of the problem is that once he's there on the front lines, he does have a moral obligation to fight. He, he knows that he can't flee and do so with courage, do so without sacrificing his integrity. It was time to seek or sink or swim. The whistle was going to blow, and it was going to be go time, and he didn't know if he was going to fulfill his charge. Well, have you ever been in a fight? You could think of like an actual fist fight. I'm quite sure some people here today have been in a fist fight of some sort before. But you could expand out, not just a violent encounter. You could also think about some great struggle, some fight, so to speak, that tests the limits of your courage and the limits of your stamina. Maybe some great relational battle with a spouse or with a wayward child. Maybe some challenge at work. I know some of us have had really difficult situations at work. Maybe you have some health problem and every day feels like a struggle and you're fighting, as it were, to go on, to press on. Some suffering, some testing, sometime you've been put in the crucible and the fire gets hot and your metal is tested. We've all got something. And in today's text, that's where Timothy finds himself. He's already being tested. And Paul tells him, you're on the front lines. Do not run away. Fight the fight. That's the basic thrust of today's passage. So read along with me in 1 Timothy. We'll begin in chapter 1, verse 18. I'll read through the end of the chapter. I'll be reading out of the New American Standard Bible. Listen to the word of the Lord. Verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Let's seek his face. Father, it's hard to imagine a more sober text. That phrase is terrifying. They made shipwreck of their faith. Lord, there's less of us here this morning than we wish there were. There have been people put out of this church, people excommunicated, some denying the faith, some persisting in sin. And here we are. Lord, like we prayed in the prayer meeting over and over again, we pray that you would keep us. You would use these moments, this instruction from your word. God, keep us. There's nothing, we have nothing, no ability in ourselves at all to keep ourselves. We have no way to persevere in and of ourselves. In other words, you know, we have no metal in ourselves to persevere. You've got to keep us. If you withdrew your hand, we would all fall, every one of us. 
So, Father, for the glory of Christ, who is the Savior, he didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world, we pray that you would keep us and you would use today's time as we consider what you've said here to draw us to that Savior, change our lives, and make us faithful to him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at our text in three parts this morning. The first part is Paul's charge to Timothy, the charge itself. The second part, if you'll allow me a metaphor, Paul tells Timothy to keep his boots dry. Tells him how to fight. I'll come back to that. And then, third part, we look at a shipwreck. The charge itself, keep your boots dry, and then the shipwreck. First point, the charge. We need to consider for just a second the context here because verse 18, our first verse in the passage, is a section change. Paul's just had a doxology in verse 17. He's gone on this digression, sort of. It's a relevant, strategic digression, but he's gone on sort of a digression. And then in verse 18, he comes back to telling Timothy what to do. So we have a bit of a section break. If I could just summarize the first 17 verses, I would say it like this. Paul's telling Timothy, as the pastor in Ephesus, to continually direct the hearts and minds of the people to the things that God says matter most. And he says, if you'll do that, if you'll direct their hearts and their minds to Christ Jesus who came into the world to save sinners, all their lives will be changed. That's your job, Timothy. Do that. I command you to do it. But on the flip side... He also tells Timothy that there's some people there in Ephesus whom we'll call the opponents who are doing something different than that. They are subverting what God has told Timothy to do. They are your opponents. They're fighting against you. They're doing the opposite. Instead of directing the people's hearts and minds to the things that God says matter, they're directing their hearts and minds to other things that don't matter like that. I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who said the most dangerous person is not the person who says false things, but the person who emphasizes the wrong things. Well, that's what these opponents are doing. They're in the Bible, and they're saying, look at the Bible, look at the Bible, but they're doing it in a way that actually takes the focus away from where it's supposed to be, and then, of course, what happens? You get bad fruit from that. People's lives, their hearts are not transformed by that kind of use of the Bible. So Paul says to Timothy, one, you direct their attention where it's supposed to be, their lives will be changed, and you need to look for, and we'll see in our passage, you need to fight against these people who are trying to undermine that effort. That's verses 1 to 17. Let me just take a little sidebar and say, like we've been saying the first few sermons here in 1 Timothy, Let me ask you, put it in question form. Are you being transformed by your interaction with the Bible? Are you different than you were a year ago, two years ago? Is there a good fruit? Are you being transformed? Do you now pursue the Lord Jesus, have fellowship with him, and imitate him joyfully in holiness in a way that you did not one, two, five, ten years ago? If not, there's something wrong with your Bible study. There's something wrong with your sermon listening. There's something wrong with your sidebar conversations in the hallway and your book reading and your commentary reading and all of that. Because Paul says that the opponents have an interaction with the Bible that just leads to useless or this mere speculation. He comes back and says basically the same thing, but worse, in chapter 6. We'll come back to that in a minute. You can read the Bible and bear bad fruit. So I'm asking you, is it working? (laughs) Are you being changed? Are you different today than you were before? Well, the Lord knows our hearts, but I want you to ask that question. I want you to be aware that you can back into your Bible study by looking at the fruits. That's what Paul's saying. It's part of what he's saying. And then also, just 
summarizing. Let me tell you how it's supposed to go. I'm still summarizing verses 1 to 17. Why does Paul bring up this whole long sidebar about the law and what the law is for and who's it for, how you're supposed to interact with it? And he talks about himself for a long time. He uses himself and his interaction with the law, I would say, to show you how it's supposed to go. He says the law, the Bible, particularly I would say the Mosaic law, is for sinners. We're going to end at life transformation. But it's for sinners. And you're convicted of your sin. You throw yourself on the grace of Christ. That's what Paul says there. I think it's verse 15. And it abounds to you. And he saves you. And then you're changed. So that what abounds in you is love and faith. Right? He says those things abounded for him in Christ Jesus. He's using his own positive example to contrast the opponents. So Timothy has a job, and Timothy has opponents. That sets the stage for our solemn charge in verses 18 to 20. He's told him about Ephesus and the situation there, the dangers, Paul's own testimony about how it's actually supposed to go. And now he's going to look Timothy square in the eyes, and he's going to give him an earnest charge. That's where we're headed. But in... Typical Pauline sort of fashion, there's this big buildup, this big solemn and grave introduction to the charge. Like elsewhere, Paul will say, I charge you in the presence of God. So he's lending weight to what he's saying. He's giving authority to what he's saying. There's formality, gravity, sobriety. The stakes are high, right? What he's saying really matters. What Timothy does and doesn't do will have eternal effects for Timothy and the whole church. So it's not surprising that there's a buildup for the charge. There's going to be casualties. Some people are not going to make it. Paul knows it. Some people aren't going to make it safely to the celestial city and see the king. Some, before they get there, are going to be seduced and they're going to fall away. Their ships are going to sink. They're going to end up on the bottom of the ocean. So Paul says... This command I entrust to you, Timothy. But notice those words, Timothy, not my servant, not soldier, my son. My son. So back to the red badge of courage, Henry, the youth, the main character, he observes this interaction at one point where you have the front lines and then you have the lieutenant who's over all the basic soldiers and one of them tries to run, and the lieutenant intercedes, or intercepts him, pardon me. He's actually beating the soldier, forcing him with violence to get back to the front lines. He's physically assaulting the guy and screaming at him and telling him to make his way back up to the front lines. He's forcing him to fight the fight, right, with violence in that case. That's not what Paul's doing here. That's not how Paul thinks. That's not the relationship that he has with Timothy. He says, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son. Earlier, he called him my true child in the faith. It's a different sort of charge. It's a different sort of command. He's a father figure. He loves Timothy. He cares about him. He's not like that lieutenant. He's not anything like that lieutenant. It would be more like a father sitting across the table from his son who's about to go to war and the son is maybe like Henry, kind of a mess, kind of afraid, a lot of anxieties, a lot of fears, uncertain how it's all going to be and the father loves his son and he looks him in the eyes. Maybe he takes his face in his hands and he says, son, this is what you have to do. That's the spirit of what Paul's doing here with Timothy. But the charge doesn't only come from Paul. It's not just Paul's charge, Paul's command. It comes from God himself. God is the one who's put Timothy in the role. The charge has divine backing. So look in verse 18. Let's look at these prophecies, this previous, previously made prophecies. It says there, that Paul entrusts the command in accordance with the prophecies previously made about Timothy. So 
you could paraphrase and you could say, I'm telling you this because of what already happened. You've already been marked out. God's identified you for this particular task. And we don't know everything about these particular previously made prophecies. The New Testament, there's some reference in Acts. I'll just point out one to you from 1 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul, this is the same letter, Paul tells Timothy, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. That's the council of elders. So at minimum, I think we can say that God himself, through his people, has identified Timothy as the man for the job. I think that's a basic thrust of what Paul's trying to tell him. There's these prophecies. God's already marked you out. God's the one who's put you to the task. God's the one who signed your papers and put you on the front lines. Timothy, according to the prophecies. He says it twice, actually. If you read carefully there, I think it's verse 18, both times, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you that... The NAS says that by them, that's the prophecies, by the prophecies. The NIV paraphrases it and says that by recalling the prophecies, you fight the good fight. The idea is divine authority, the divine charge, the divine stationing of Timothy. Bullets are going to whiz by his head. The cannonballs are going to be flying by. And God says, Timothy, stay put. Stay right there and fight the fight. And this is really important because of the nature of the fight. If you just meditate for a minute on what's going on, it might be long. Timothy, he may have to stand there and fight and live a life where he's got a lot of emotional angst for a long time. Life may not be easy for Timothy. It could be long. A lot of people start out strong and then they just fizzle. But not if God put you there, right? It's also hard. It's not a cakewalk. There's real suffering. If you wade into the kind of fight that Timothy is being called to, you're going to take some hits, right? That's the best way I know how to put it. You might lose an arm. There's going to be some hits. There's going to be some real suffering. People around you might get hurt. But it's God who's put Timothy there. The novelty wears off. At first, you start out so, so strong. You're all gung-ho, a lot of emotion, but over time, things drag on, the excitement wanes, enthusiasm does too. Maybe he'd be tempted to just check out. I mean, it sure would be easier if I just stepped back from some of this and didn't have to engage. Well, what's going to sustain Timothy? I mean, that's just a lot of stuff, right? Paul's already told him he's got opponents. His pastoral ministry is going to be characterized by people actively fighting against him, not just apathy or ignorance, active opposition from people within the church. What's going to sustain him? Paul's answer here is divine backing, divine purpose, and I think you can extend even divine pleasure. It was God's good pleasure to put Timothy in the role. And all that's Paul's introduction to the charge. And we come now to the actual charge. We've said it several times in today's service. The charge is fight the good fight. That's the charge. Fight, Timothy. Fight the good fight. So what I want to do is try and define the good fight. What is it? What's he telling him to do? And I think the best way to do it, as is often the case, is to use the context. We're going to first look at the context looking back, like higher up in the letter, verses 1 to 17. And then we're going to look at verses, or I guess I should say, chapter 2 and following, right? Look forward. We can get a sneak preview about what the fight is. Let's look back first, the first 17 verses. I mentioned already the opponents. They're propagating strange doctrines. And when they do it, the people are made worse. In chapter 6, it says... That those kind of doctrines, he calls them different doctrines, doctrines that don't agree with sound words, those that they disagree with a doctrine conforming to godliness, that kind of doctrine, it actually makes people worse. It says what arises is envy. They get more envious. Strife shows up. There's arguments and disunity. 
There's abusive language. The arguments turn bad. There's evil suspicions. Trust is eroded in the congregation. And he says, constant friction. Nobody's getting along. These opponents are making the congregation less Christ-like, less holy. They're not being conformed to the image of Christ. They're being deconstructed from his image by this bad, false teaching. Who's an opponent of God? People who teach the wrong things, they tell, they say untrue things about important doctrines, they deny the Trinity, they deny justification, etc. And people who emphasize the wrong doctrines. Both cases make you an opponent of God. You are striving against what God is doing in the world and in the church. But we're trying to define Paul's charge to Timothy. The charge is to oppose these people. That's what the charge is. Oppose them. We read in verse 3 earlier in 1 Timothy, Paul tells him the whole reason he left him in Timothy. I'm sorry, he left him in Ephesus. I left you there to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. That's the fight. Looking up in the text, verse 1 to 17, that's the fight. But also, you can look at the rest of the letter And there's more than that. Brian said a couple of weeks ago, he's also supposed to teach the people. He's supposed to give them what they need. So you have the opponents who are giving poison to all the sheep. And Timothy is supposed to feed them what they need. The good shepherd wants his sheep fed. Timothy is supposed to feed them. So just give you a little sample of where we're headed in 1 Timothy He talks about prayer, he talks about women in the church, he talks about elders, deacons, people who apostatize, false teachers. Again, temptations to get derailed onto unworthy theological hobby horses. He talks about how to handle widows and meeting their practical needs. He talks about paying pastors. He talks about removing pastors who won't quit sinning. He talks about money and rich people. He talks about food and how you should eat it with a grateful heart. He talks about a lot of stuff. Timothy's job is to stand there and tell the people the mind of God about how to live, right? So what does Paul mean by fight the good fight? I think what he mainly means is to vigorously oppose the opponents and then to replace their false teaching with the truth. Or you could say it another way, Make sure that what the people are hearing is the mind of God and not something else. That's fight the good fight. And if there are people who oppose, you fight them. The last thing to note about the fight before we move on is that it's a good fight. He says fight the good fight. Not just fight the fight, fight the opponents. Fight the good fight. Why is it good? It's good because it's God's way. Let me just illustrate. Sometimes people talk about conflict in churches as though everyone involved in any conflict in any church is necessarily in sin or is necessarily bringing shame to the name of Christ. Is all conflict in a local church? Maybe I should say it different than that. Is every person engaged in conflict in a local church bringing shame to the name of Christ? I mean, it's a clear no, right? Paul told Timothy to go fight people, not with his fists, right? But we define the fight, but to fight, to engage in conflict. It's, man, it's crazy to say, it's good. It's good for Timothy to play the man and fight the fight, to do the will of God. It is a good fight to lay your life down and labor for God's people, for the glory of Christ in the church. It's a good fight. It is true, you know, that only the most courageous and integrity-filled, God-loving men on planet Earth dare to get involved in stuff like that. You do know that. Do you know how easy it would be for a pastor to see issues in the church and just kind of slide out of the way, out of the back door? If you're going to engage Grace Church pastors in a fight in the church. You've got to be 
living in fellowship with the Lord Jesus and loving his people the way that he does. You will not fight a fight like that if you do not. Sometimes the fight is good, right? Sometimes it's a good fight. That's our first point, the charge, fight the good fight. That's point number one. We have three points. Here comes the second one. Our second one gives a qualification. It gives a specification. It gives the manner in which Timothy is to fight the fight. There's a specific detail. And this is, in effect, what he says. I mentioned this before. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, when you fight, make sure you keep your boots dry. That's point number two. Keep your boots dry. So what do I mean by that? I can't remember where I heard this. Some of y'all probably heard it too. I might be embarrassed if some of you know where this actually came from. I don't know. But... Uh, soldiers, apparently, oftentimes get the advice, as you're fighting, you have got to keep your boots dry. Because, of course, what happens? Your feet get wet, you're not going to stay in the fight, right? You're going to end up with sores and gangrene and all kind of medical problems, because if you can't walk, you can't fight, right? You become a casualty of war. Timothy's got to watch himself. That's what's coming in point number two. He's got to watch himself. Not only fight them, but watch yourself. Keep your own boots dry so that you can stay in the fight. The translations handle this phrase pretty similarly. The NASB says, keeping faith and a good conscience. Another says, holding faith and a good conscience. Another, holding on to faith and a good conscience. And then another, having faith and a good conscience. That's all pretty similar, right? Not a lot of variety. Fight, making sure you hang on to your faith and a good conscience. That's the way I would want to paraphrase it. But like I pointed out a second ago, this is not a look at the opponents, not an outward-facing specification. It's an inward-facing specification. It's not where to aim your gun, how to pull the trigger, throw a punch, how to swing a sword, none of that. This is the preservation of the soldier. This is how to keep your own boots dry. Keep faith and a good conscience. Paul Elswell will warn Timothy or Titus to keep a close, close watch on yourself and your doctrine. A close watch or you will become a casualty. You'll be removed from the fight. An application of this is pastors are not immune from losing their faith and losing a good conscience. They're just Christians, right? So pastors in the room, before you go trying to care for other people, you need to keep your boots dry. You need to watch your own faith. You need to know that you are in danger of suffering shipwreck of your faith just like everybody else. Well, let's consider the details of Paul's charge. There's those two things. Keep faith, keep a good conscience. First, hang on to faith. Hang on to it. The way warning passages work in the Bible, like this one, assume, the warnings assume, that Timothy needs the warning. In God's sovereignty, God knows that if Timothy can be warned, he can be prodded to perseverance. Warnings can be heeded even as God sovereignly undergirds causing him to persevere. We need the warning. So Paul gives Timothy the warning. This is how you fight the fight. Don't get so wrapped up in the fight that you lose your focus on the purity and simplicity of devotion to Jesus. Don't get jaded. Don't get burnt out. Keep faith when the great dragon of sin in the church raises its ugly head and bears its yellow, nasty teeth trying to devour everything. Don't get so wrapped up in all of that that you forget to be devoted to Jesus, the head of the church. Keep your faith. And secondly, hang on to a good conscience. Keep a good conscience. Now, I think that good conscience is basically the same as our English idiom, a clear conscience. 
Keep a clear conscience. That's how we would say it in today's normal speech. So don't violate your conscience. Keep a clear conscience. Don't make little compromises. Don't explain away and ignore small sins. Because we're going to see in just a second, this is how shipwreck of faith happens. There's a connection. We're coming back to that. But Timothy, keep a clear conscience. Nobody signs up for a shipwreck, right? Nobody starts the Christian life saying, I hope I shipwreck. Nobody. And if you just imagine an actual ship in the building of the ship, nobody builds the thing to wreck it on the reef. But what some people do is they make foolish and unwise decisions, say, in compromising on the quality of the boards or the craftsmanship or the construction. And they think, oh, it'll be fine. Only to find out later, when you start running into icebergs or whatever, the ship that you compromised on can't sail that way. It's not good for the journey. The conscience, you cannot violate your conscience. Paul is zeroing in on two things. Continue to believe in Christ and keep a clear conscience. So what's the relationship between your conscience and apostasy? There is a connection in the text. Anytime you violate your conscience, you cannot at the same time have fellowship with God. I'm not saying you automatically lose your salvation. That's not what I mean. What I do mean is it is impossible to sin and not let go of it and have fellowship with the God whom you know you are displeasing. It does not work like that. You can't do it. It is impossible to maintain personal, relational, active fellowship with him and sin against him at the same time. You can't do it. Even for what you might call small sins. Timothy, you must make no compromises. Keep a clear conscience. This is especially when you will not come clean on your sin. I don't know if any of you have ever read The Scarlet Letter. One of the main characters has a lot to lose if he were to confess his adultery. And so he goes on for years living a double life, living a lie, because he doesn't want to come clean. And he actually wastes away in the book and dies as a result of his refusal to confess his sin. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, don't you do that. You keep a clear conscience. When you sin, when you violate your conscience, be tenderhearted. Keep short accounts. There's a reason the Lord Jesus told us if you are worshiping, giving an altar, an offering, pardon me, at the altar to God, and you remember right there in that moment, oh, my brother has something against me. I think that means I sinned against him. I've done something wrong, and I've never made it right. Leave church. Go find him. You can't worship and have a guilty conscience at the same time. Come clean, confess your sins, keep short accounts. Paul's warning Timothy about how to stay in the fight and how to not make shipwreck of his faith. So, talking generally, right? Violations of conscience. I don't know about you, but I believe when the gospel is preached, when God's word is open, the Holy Spirit is present in the room. And the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of our sin. The one who shows us where we don't have a good or clear conscience. So let me be more specific. Perhaps that same Holy Spirit will prick your heart. Here are things that the Holy Spirit detests. If you've committed them, let today be the day where you humble yourself, confess your sins to God and man, and trust in the blood of the Lord Jesus to make you clean. Any and all forms of sexual immorality, like pornography, have you cleared your web history lately? Why did you clear it? From whom are you trying to hide it? Any homosexual acts, any fantasies that you indulge rather than fighting them, or a self-righteousness, that views other people 
who've committed various sexual sins as less than you, beneath you, unworthy of your compassion and grace? How about greed? Storing up for yourselves treasure on earth. Jesus said you can't serve God and wealth. You can't. How about anger? Yelling at your spouse. Did you confess it? Yelling at your kids. Did you come clean? How about justifying your anger, saying that, oh, I treat them this way because I love them so much. That's a really awful sin. The blood of Christ can make you clean, but you've got to come clean. How about immodest dress? God tells us to dress modestly, right? So our ladies, are you seeking to gain attention or approval or whatever by flaunting your sexuality through the way you dress? Or what about your time in front of the mirror? Are the vines of vanity tangling you up and strangling out your fellowship with God? How about drinking too much? How about gossip? How about slander? How about disrespect against the people who are in authority over you? This same passage says that if the servants don't show respect to their masters, what will happen? Public shame to the name of God and our doctrine. So let me just stop there. And let me ask you to think honestly about where you violated your conscience. And more specifically... Where do you not have a clear conscience? Where have you been unwilling to pay the social cost of coming clean? Or the economic cost of coming clean? The relational cost of coming clean? If you won't pay the cost, it means you want the thing more than fellowship with God and a non-shipwrecked faith. Where do you not have a clean conscience? Lord, help us. Because what we're about to see in our third point is that violating your conscience in this way takes you to a place you do not want to go. God's not playing games. He's not mocked. You will reap what you sow. So listen. If you have unconfessed sin... You've been unwilling to confess it and make it right, both with God and men. Let today be the day that you come clean. Let today be the day that you bank on the blood of Christ and live his way no matter the consequences and say, yes, Lord, your way is best. I've got to have you even if I lose everything else. He'll forgive you. He's a God of love. He loves people who violate their consciences and then come clean. Paul, that's part of the reason Paul told his big long story in the beginning about how terrible he was. He's responsible for people's death. And then he says, look at the great big grace of Jesus Christ that he's poured out on me. There's nothing too big. There's nothing too bad. The safest place in the world is at the foot of the cross, even with all your sins. But his blood comes down and makes you clean and loved forever. He'll manage all the fallout, all the cost of having a clean conscience and confessing, confessing sin. It's the happy path, right? We all know people who've come clean with some terrible sins, and man, they're living the blessed life. That is the blessed life, because they have God. They have fellowship with him. The stakes are really high, right? We're talking about not making shipwreck of your faith, going to hell, eternal damnation, the just wrath of God for eternity. The stakes could not be higher. So it's not surprising then that Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, when it gets hot, you hang on to a clear conscience. Don't you violate that. You've got to stay in the fight. And then I think just to press his point in all the way into the corners, he gives them an example of what happens when it goes bad. When people do violate their conscience and do make shipwreck of their faith, this is point number three, the shipwreck. It's the counterexample. It's what happens when your boots get wet. 
You get gangrene, you get ulcers, you can't march, and you become another casualty of war. And he uses these two men as examples who are casualties, men who let their boots get wet, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who are, at least Hymenaeus, mentioned elsewhere. These guys are examples. He's talking to Timothy, telling Timothy to fight and stay in the fight, and he's using these guys to sober Timothy up a little bit and let it get real. So let's slow down. Specifically, what did they do? Because we know that the ship that was their faith ran aground in a reef, sustained a massive gash in the hole, water poured in, the whole ship spiraled down to the bottom of the ocean in a giant blasphemous calamity. How'd they get there? What happened? They started, like was prayed in our prayer meeting, they started so well, and they ended up down there. The answer, I think, in the text is that they rejected a clear or a good conscience. They pushed it away. Look in verse 19. Tells Timothy, fight the good fight in 18, and then 19, keeping faith and a good conscience, which... Some have rejected. Keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected. What's the which? What have they rejected? I think the most immediate answer is their good conscience. They rejected it. And then they suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. They rejected their conscience. They pushed it away. That's the the which is singular, right? It's possible, but it's really unlikely that Paul's talking about both rejecting a good conscience and rejecting faith. Almost for sure, he's talking about rejecting the good conscience. At least that's the highlight. There's a connection, as I've said, between your conscience and persevering in faith, and even your conscience and blasphemy. Paul links them, and he uses these two men as examples. Let me just draw out one thing as a sidebar. Look in the text again. Keeping, good, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have, now that could be two, which some, these two, have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. But it's not likely It's not just them. Another translation says, among whom? No, there it is, verse 20. There it is. Among these. Look at verse 20. I thought it was there. Verse 20. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander. In other words, there's more. He's given you two examples. Hymenaeus and Alexander. There's more of them. Let me give you the sidebar. Just like a fight in a church isn't necessarily indicative that there's something wrong with you for fighting, we'll say. Similarly, the presence of apostates in a local church isn't necessarily a sign that there's something wrong with the church. I think that's also implied by the fact that Jesus gave his instructions on what to do when people won't part with their sin. He's talking to the apostles. The presence of apostates isn't necessarily indicative that there's something wrong with a church. Now, what would be really wrong is 1 Corinthians 5, when you have apostates or people who continue in sin and the church doesn't do anything about it. That's a really bad thing. You want to see the Apostle Paul get animated, go read 1 Corinthians 5. That's a big problem. But... When the tragedy happens of a shipwrecked faith in a congregation and the congregation puts people out, the congregation has actually demonstrated the presence of the Spirit of Christ in the church. There's something right with a church that does that. Now, we don't want people to make shipwreck of their faith, God forbid. But you also need to know that there's not a scarlet letter on a church that removes people for apostasy, blasphemy, and unrepentant sin. There's something right about a church that's willing to obey Jesus in the hard things. Now back to our focus. Hymenaeus, Alexander, what did they do? Let me just put it simply. 
Somewhere, they began to violate their conscience. Then, at some point, they began to blaspheme, teach strange doctrines. Three, in the end, they made shipwreck of their faith. That's how it works. You violate your conscience, you lose your fellowship with God. What's, as Rick said, what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. You don't have fellowship with him, your life's not going to be transformed, sin is going to be popping up everywhere, no telling what kind of Bible study you're going to be interested in, you're going to start to teach things that aren't too true, strange doctrines, blasphemy, and you're going to make shipwreck of your faith. Well, how did Paul respond? It was one of the most striking passages in the whole Bible. The answer is, Paul handed these men over to Satan. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever handed anyone over to Satan? I'm going to say that for most of the people in this room, the answer is that yes, you have. Is this a Christian idea? Do Christians hand anybody over to Satan? And sometimes, yes, the answer, they do. This is what is often called excommunication. People in the church put out of the church. So here's, here's how it works. Imagine a giant ship with the entirety of the church at Ephesus on board. They're going from Europe, across, I should do it this way, Europe across the Atlantic Sea to the United States. Church at Ephesus, they're going along. Everything's going okay. But all of a sudden, Alexander starts to beat other passengers with a big oaken club. And then he starts threatening to make people walk the plank. What are Paul, and you could say by extension Timothy, supposed to do? Nothing? Just let them do it? God forbid. And then, after that, Hymenaeus makes his way down to the lowest level of the ship and he starts drilling holes in the bottom so that the water starts pouring in. Again, what is Paul supposed to do? Nothing? Well, I would guess that at first, like Matthew 18, he would say, stop, you can't hit people. You can't make anybody walk the plank. You can't drill holes in the bottom of the boat. And then, when Alexander and Hymenaeus keep right on, Paul tells you what he did. What did he do? He threw them overboard. He threw them out, right? He kicked them out of the local community of Christ into the outside, the realm of the prince of the power of the air. He handed them over to Satan in his domain. This is called excommunication. That's why I say that most people in the room have handed people over to Satan, I think that's what Paul means by the phrase. Put them out. Now, if you're a careful reader, you'll notice the purpose statement there in verse 20. Let me just back up just a hair. Let me read all of verse 20. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. Here's your purpose statement so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. He has a design, a hope, a prayer, a wish, a longing. He's got an intent. He wants something to happen. Throw him overboard. Lord, use even this. He doesn't want him to drown. He doesn't want him to be eaten by sharks. One commentator said it like this. While they're sloshing around in the sea of this world, throw them a lifeline, right? We want these people, you could say, to be restored. You could say so that they will be taught not to blaspheme, so that they will learn. It's not like teach them a lesson, like vengeance. That's not what he means. He wants them to learn to be taught not to blaspheme so that later they reach up, they grab the life preserver, they come in the boat, and they say, I deserve nothing. 
I'm a sinner through and through. The Lord Jesus, his blood is enough for me. His broken body is enough for me. He's the Savior. Even for all the terrible things I did, all the blasphemy, all the false teaching, teaching strange doctrines, beating up other people, all that stuff, Christ alone, and they turn from their sin. He wants them to be taught not to blaspheme, specifically. There's enough grace in the blood of the Lord Jesus, even for people like that, even for people like Paul, and even for people like you and me. But as we move towards a close, let me just remind you why, like I said earlier, Paul brings up these two men in the first place. This is a warning to Timothy. You don't want to be like these guys, Timothy. You're in danger. Everybody is. You need to heed the warning. You need to look at the counterexample. This happens to us, does it not? When people are excommunicated, when people deny the faith. I hope you get a little fear and trembling when that happens. I'm sure that you do. There's a warning there. It's embedded. You can't avoid it. Paul wants to put the warning right up in Timothy's face and say, look what happened to these guys, Timothy. Hang on to a clear conscience no matter what or you'll end up just like them. So let's conclude. Let's talk about the main point of the passage. What do you walk away with? Paul, the apostle, tells Timothy, I would say the pastor, at the church at Ephesus, to fight the good fight, oppose the false teachers, and then also give them true food. And as he does it, keep his own boots dry, making sure he clings to faith and never lets go of having a clear conscience or he'll end up just like Alexander and Hymenaeus and make a shipwreck of his own faith. That's the point of the passage. We can make some applications. Grace Church pastors, I love you men. You need the exhortation. Fight the good fight. Don't give up. Continue to be men of valor. Don't shy away. Move forward. Serve the Lord Jesus as he shepherds his people. Don't let anybody on the boat throw anybody else overboard. Fight the good fight. Also, what God calls good, don't call bad. He says it's a good fight. I know it can get hard. I know that. And God calls it good. Don't call it bad. Don't shy away. Don't get jaded. If you get jaded, tell somebody. And when they're imperfect, forgive them. And as you fight, make two things non-negotiable every single day. Your own vital and sincere faith in the Lord Jesus and a clear conscience. No exceptions. And when you sin, humble yourself immediately. Confess it, all of it, without excuses. The only way you can do that is to bank on the sufficiency of Christ, both to forgive and to provide for you after. And take note, Grace Church pastors, especially of the people who've already been handed over to Satan in this church's 16-year history. Receive the warning. You're not invulnerable. I don't want to see a single one of you brothers, pastors, on the bottom of the ocean with a shipwrecked faith out in the world being ruled by Satan. Receive the warning. Hold fast to Christ. Be faithful to him. Keep a clear conscience. Next, Grace Church members. It's good for us to understand that some aspects of church life are called a fight. We kind of have these ideas. Maybe it's our therapeutic society where if it's therapeutic for you, it's good. If it's not therapeutic for you, it's bad. Well, if some aspects of church life are a fight, that doesn't sound therapeutic for you and your emotional well-being, does it? 
No, but God says it's a good fight, and he tells Timothy he needs to fight it. Some aspects of church are hard because we and you are sinners. Wade in. Don't shy away. You also need to consider that you have men, pastors, who are certainly broken men, but divinely stationed to try and help you get across the sea safely to the celestial city so that you see the king. You can't bypass his design. You can't. It's the way that God designed the world. He made it, we didn't. It's his way. He puts people like me in your life to get you across the sea safely so that you'll see him. He beckons you home to him and he puts pastors in your life to help you get there. So receive the instruction from Hebrews, let us do this with joy, not with groaning or grief, because this would be unprofitable for you. And then finally, I think by extension, it's right to say, you should get in the trenches and fight. You should. I know that Paul's talking to Timothy in the passage. That is correct. That's true. What sort of man, though, can see his brother in arms locked in a fight to the death and then stand back and do nothing? No. No, we have the whole counsel of Scripture, right? We have Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. We have Galatians chapter 1, where Paul says to the whole church, if somebody comes to you, you church, all of you, not just pastors, everybody, if somebody comes to you preaching some other gospel, let him be a curse. The whole church is to make sure that nobody blasphemes Hymenaeus and Alexander. Wade in to the fight. Move forward. Take as much responsibility for us as you possibly can. Seek to get our ship with everybody on it all the way to the other side. And then finally, those of you who are not Christians, I'm so glad that you're here. I hope that you are, every time you come here, getting an introduction to the God who speaks, who is, to the only God, the God who made you. And I want to warn you, kids, visitors, teenagers, younger kids, that God's not playing any games. He let Hymenaeus and Alexander sink when they're shipwrecked. Maybe the idea that God's man, Paul, would hand anybody over to Satan, maybe that's shocking to you. It is shocking. Maybe it should be shocking. Maybe you should be shocked. It's true that God's a God of love. Yes, God is love. And God is a God of justice. And God will not be mocked. And you will reap what you sow. And our God is a consuming fire. And he said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's all true, all at the same time. He will never compromise on his holy character. You go on ignoring the thing inside of you that makes you know when you've done wrong, that's called your conscience, you go on ignoring that, you're going to meet his justice. I do not want that to happen. You ought to come clean. Kids, teenagers, visitors, you ought to come clean. You ought to confess your sin to God and then to everybody that you sinned against. You ought to come clean and you ought to look to Christ who came into the world to save sinners. You want to be loved? Take all your sin, all the violations of your conscience, bring it to the Lord Jesus, see him dying on the cross for you, and look at him saying, I love you, I forgive you. That's why I came. God's justice is hot. God's justice is precise. And his love is so magnanimous that he would even forgive those who have earned that justice. He would love and treasure and call children, everybody who would turn away from sin and trust Christ for salvation. So I'm going to leave you 
where I think Paul would want to leave you. He's at pains, like I've said, to keep Timothy, and by extension, the whole church at Ephesus, focused on the right object. I've been talking about that, right? He is at pains, Paul is, to keep their focus where it belongs. Timothy, don't get wrapped up into myths and endless genealogies, not in old wives' tales, not in debates and arguments about words. Don't pay any of that any attention. Don't give it the time of day. Keep your attention focused on the Lord Jesus Christ like a heat-seeking missile. Look again. Focus on him. Or as he says elsewhere in 1 Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. Remember him. Let's play together. Father, for every guilty conscience in the room, I pray that you would make big the Savior on the cross who forgives. Draw our attention to him. Make us know his great love in the gospel, his resurrected glory as the king who loves to save even sinners. Draw attention to him, Lord. Do it for his glory. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.